Good morning, again. I don't know if you've ever heard the name Hiru Onoda before. He was a Japanese soldier during World War II, and he died a few years ago in 2014 at the age of 91. Uh, What made him famous, even if you don't know his name, you may have heard his story, um, is this, that, that for most soldiers and for most countries around the globe, World War II lasted five years six years tops. Um, But for Hiru, it lasted three full decades, okay? Mr. Onoda was a Japanese intelligence officer who was sent to the Philippines to spy on enemy movements and operations. He served in this way throughout the war. But as World War II neared its end, he was cut off from the rest of his troops on Lubang Island near Luzon. And he wasn't captured with the other troops. And with orders to never surrender, This guy continued to fight World War II until 1974, okay? True story. For 29 years, he lived off the land, he foraged food, he stole food when he could find it, and he continued to engage locals as enemy combatants for the next 30 years. He even even killed some, some locals over this time. Local government, Japanese officials sent representatives, and they made regular contact with Hiru to try to persuade him that the war was over, but he wouldn't buy it, okay? Um, They dropped leaflets with news updates, but he considered it Western propaganda. He wasn't having it. He knew his orders, he was sticking to it, and he did for three full decades. It wasn't until his former commanding officer, the one who actually had commissioned him in the first place, trekked into the jungle and found him and said, I relieve you of your duty. You may stop fighting this war. Here's a picture of Hiru turning in his samurai sword, wearing a 30-year-old battered army uniform when he stopped fighting World War II in 1974. Okay? In an interview a few years before he died, he said, I became an officer and I received an order. If I could not carry it out, I would feel shame." And then he paused, and then he added, I'm very competitive. (laughs) No kidding, man. You went on in a war that no one else was fighting for 30 years. You see, it's not that Hiro Onoda was an evil person or a crazy person. He just wasn't living in reality, right? I mean, over here was the way things really were, the truth, reality. Okay, the truth was World War II was over, the Allies had won, there was no need for military intelligence in the Philippines of enemy movements because there were no enemies in the Philippines. Uh, All of that was over. And then uh, it was over here. This was Hiru's world, okay? Sort of a parallel reality that he was living in. He was fighting a war that didn't exist. His identity was wrong. He was not actually a soldier anymore, not really, but he thought he was. His mission was wrong. No one needed the intelligence that he was faithfully gathering for three decades. And his relationships were wrong. Those he considered enemies weren't actually enemies. He was disconnected from the truth for a huge part of his life. And it took an encounter with a very specific person to bring him back home to reality. We're in the middle of a sermon series called Grace DNA. And the goal of these seven weeks is to unpack what it is that makes Grace Church, Grace Church. We're asking questions like, who are we? Why do we exist? And how do we live out our mission here in the Roaring Fork Valley? And the way that we're framing the answer to these questions is this. 
Grace Church exists to celebrate and extend the gospel of Jesus by loving God, loving one another, and loving our valley. And we're taking two weeks on each of these three great branches of the Christian life that really support and direct all we do as a church. Loving God, loving one another, and loving our valley. Last week, we looked at how we grow in our love for God. This week, I want us to ask the question, why do we worship God? And here is where I think Hiru Onoda can help us. Because what happened to Hiru 30 years after he started fighting World War II is what God intends to happen to us as we gather together to worship every week. You see, true Christian worship is an encounter with reality. Okay? Now, not all of us are running around a foreign jungle fighting in a war that doesn't exist. If you are, I'd love to chat with you after the service for just a couple minutes. But all of us are living apart from reality in some ways. Okay? I mean, our little alternate realities, they look a bit different, but we all have them. Some of us believe we are far more important and necessary than we actually are. Some of us believe we are far less loved or valued than we actually are. Some of us believe we can manage and plan and um, the circumstances of our life with a far greater power than we actually have. And some of us believe we have too little to contribute and to add to conversations or relationships or church family or our vocation. We are out of step with the truth in important ways in our life. And there is a truth about reality. There is a truth about you and about who God is and about why he created you and what he's done for you. And Christian worship, what this is intended to do is to help us encounter the truth, encounter the living God and reorient us to reality. Our words, our prayers, our readings, our songs, they're all designed quite intentionally to bring us into the real story of the world. Worship is an encounter with the living God. And when God brings his people into his presence, something happens. He doesn't leave us alone while he has us here. We're renewed. We're renovated. We're restored again. And we regain our sanity. We're changed. This is exactly what happened to the prophet Isaiah in this famous encounter with God that we just read from chapter 6. When Isaiah was ushered into the throne room of God, when he encountered God and worshipped him, God brought him back to reality and he changed his life. This passage shows us why we worship. Let's jump into this. Look again at Isaiah 6, 1, the first verse of this passage with me. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, And the train of his robe filled the temple. When you read this whole encounter, one of the first things that jumps out to us is just how big and great and powerful God is. And by extension, how small Isaiah is and how small we are. We're told God is sitting on a throne high and lifted up. We do not interact with God as equals. Okay? We don't wander into the throne room of a king by accident or by whim. You know how you get into the throne room of a king? You're invited in. You're ushered in. You don't beckon God. God beckons us. That's reality. When God graciously chooses to speak with us, when he initiates 
a conversation with us, even a relationship with us, he doesn't do it as an equal. He's not calling up a friend. He, he stoops down so low to interact with us. It's like a mom or a dad getting down on all fours and then eventually just laying on their belly to see eye to eye with their infant child. That's reality. That's how God meets us. This is one reason Christian worship traditionally for centuries has begun with a call to worship. That's why we start our service with a call to worship. What this is, is it's a reminder that in our relationship with God, it's God who speaks the first word to us. He calls us into his presence and we respond. All relationship with him is at his request and on his terms. And so it's a small dose of reality. It helps reorient us to God's greatness, his primacy, his first gracious initiating words of love in our lives. We also read uh, in, this, in, the, in verse 1, the train of God's robe filled his temple. This is just a way for Isaiah to take a highlighter and underline how big God is. This imagery basically says just the leftovers of his robe filled the largest building Isaiah would ever see in his life. God is overwhelmingly great, overwhelmingly sovereign, powerful, and supreme. And we, in comparison, are underwhelmingly small. And we're needy. And we're powerless. And this is a reality that we easily forget. The Bible's not saying we're worthless or that we're unlovable. Far from it. It has got a a high view of human dignity, a high value that God has placed on you as his creation and his child. But it is saying we're finite and it is saying we're very small. James calls our life a mist that appears for a moment and then it's gone. The psalmist calls our life a handbreadth, just a few inches on a line that stretches into eternity past and into eternity future. That's reality. And you know what? Here's the thing. Um, Living in that reality that we are small, it's actually a really, really good thing. It's a healthy thing. Because one of the false stories, one of the false realities that you and I easily slip into, especially in, in our modern American culture, okay? The sort of individualistic, authentic self, me first, consumeristic America, one of the easiest things we can start to believe about ourselves is that our life is about ourselves. And and I'm as guilty of this false reality as anyone here. This is the belief that our goals are what matter most, that we're in control of our future, that we call the shots. So just like Hiru running around in the jungle, thinking thinking that he's fighting in in a war that doesn't actually exist, we are often running around in our own lives thinking we're big enough or strong enough to arrange the circumstances of our lives and that we own the rights to our own future. It's a false reality, but it seems real to us, doesn't it? You know how you might be, you know how you know if you're living in this false reality? Here's a test, okay, like a little diagnostic, a little self-exam that you can give your heart to know if you're in that false reality along with me and so many others. Here it is. You're living in that false reality if you easily get angry or if you easily get anxious or both. You know what anger needs to grow and thrive in the human heart? 
Anger needs the assumption that we have the right to control our circumstances. It needs that assumption to thrive. Janet and I um, discovered this uh, a number of years ago after we had our first child. We, we found ourselves getting angry easily. And what, what we realized was we thought, you know, we had lived many years of our lives thinking that we owned the rights to like our sleep in the middle of the night or that we owned our rights to our own comfort and our own time and our own money. And when these things started being taken away at whim by a four-month-old, you know, we got angry. That was our initial reaction. Anger needs the assumption that we own the rights to our future, to our comfort, and to controlling the circumstances of our lives. In the same way, you know what anxiety and worry needs to thrive in the human heart? What really helps it grow and flourish? The belief that we just might be able to control enough circumstances and manage enough outcomes and shape enough scenarios to make life work how we want it to work on our own. Anxiety needs that soil to grow. But that belief, it just breeds fear. It just breeds worry. Because the thoughts that immediately come into our mind is, what if I can't hold it all together? What if the circumstances get too big for me to control? What if I can't manage the outcomes? What if, what if? Our anger and our anxiety can only thrive if we think our life is in our own hands. In other words, if we live in a false reality. On the other hand, you know what grows patience and gentleness and the ability to endure life's chaotic circumstances with hope and joy? You know what a restful spirit and a peaceful heart needs to thrive? It needs the truth. It needs reality. What those heart characteristics need to grow and thrive is the reality, not the delusion, but the truth that we're actually minor characters in another person's story, that our life is not about us, that we are here to bring glory and fame and joy to another, and that we have far less control of our circumstances than we care to admit. But at the same time, the one who our life is really about holds all of the loose ends of, uh, that we can't hold together in his loving hands. All those loose ends that we can't possibly control or manage or manipulate on our own. On our own. The trust that God is big enough and sovereign enough and good enough to usher our short little life through the storms of this world and bring us out the other side, that is what helps peace grow in the human heart, contentment in the human heart, calm in the human heart. That reality actually leads to freedom from anger and freedom from fear. I am small and God is very, very, very big. What good news, right? What good news? That's reality. And worship leads us there. Worship is an encounter with the great and living God. As we redirect our gaze to him, to his mightiness, to his strength, to his uncontainable glory, we're changed, we're healed. We relearn what it means to be human and to be a minor character in his story. And it's a life that is far more life-giving than trying to forge some alternate reality on our own, out there, alone in the jungle, wherever we are. Reality, it turns out, 
is a healthier place to live than whatever else we're going to forge on our own. And, and it's this healing that's exactly what we see next in Isaiah's encounter with God. So picking up in verse two, above him stood the seraphim, above God stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah said, woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Here's another characteristic of reality that looms large in this passage. We're small and God is great. Also, God is holy and we're not. We're unclean. The seraphim, these angels who who literally live in the presence of reality for their entire existence. And they don't really have the option of making up an alternate reality because God is like there in their face all the time. You know what the one thing they do for their entire existence is? They just call back and forth to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what they do. They worship in the presence of God. Often in Hebrew, uh, repetition of a phrase is is a way to emphasize or underline or highlight a certain characteristic the author wants to stand out. So just for example, in Psalm 130, the whole psalm ends with the line, my soul waits for the Lord like a watchman for the morning, like a watchman for the morning. He didn't forget what he was writing. He was underlining it. He doubled it for emphasis. There are many doubles in the Bible. Um, There's only one triple in the entire Bible. Uh, There's only one word that applies to one being that is so true and so real and so deep that it gets a three-peat. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the Hebrew way of saying holiness is the deepest characteristic of God. His, His righteousness, his justice, his goodness, his love, infinite generosity, kindness, all of this flows out of his holy, perfect character. And when Isaiah even gets near the presence of such holiness, he's so deeply convicted of his own unholiness, his, his uncleanliness, his sin, that Isaiah's confession just comes pouring out of his mouth immediately. It's like he can't control himself. He meets God and he confesses. That's his gut reaction. He says, woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The most natural thing to do in the world when you encounter the reality of God's holiness is to confess, to repent, to throw ourselves down at his feet and say with Isaiah, I'm undone. I'm caught. I have no excuse. Here I am. But in the everyday hum of life, right, work, errands, chores, carpool, budgets, deadlines at work, I think we can often distract ourselves into thinking or into living in an alternate reality. And we can actually convince ourselves that we're actually doing pretty good, right? That, that really, at the end of the day, we don't have much to confess. There's not a lot of guilt we carry around. We're basically good people doing good things for other good people. But is that true? I mean, is that right? Like when you're honest with yourself, when you pause 
when you have a quiet moment, is that the real story of your life? HBO has a show called True Detective, which is pretty dark and disturbing. I'm not really sure I should be recommending it in a sermon. So I'm not recommending True Detective. I'm citing True Detective for the next moment. Um, But it is really, really well done, at least season one. Season two is a bit of a letdown for me. But in season one, Matthew McConaughey plays this Louisiana detective uh, who's investigating a murder. His name's Russ Cole. And he gets a reputation in the department as the sort of go-to interrogator. Okay, the guy, the detective who can get a confession out of almost anybody that he sits down with. And in one scene, he explains his method of these interrogations, his philosophy of human nature. And this is what he says in the show. Look, everybody knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants confession. Everybody wants some cathartic narrative for it. The guilty especially, and everybody's guilty. See, what McConaughey is speaking is the reality that Isaiah is experiencing when he encounters the blazing clarity of the holiness of God in worship. All the false realities burn away like fog. We have wronged God. We have wronged one another. Everybody's guilty. But what happens next in Isaiah's worship experience is what makes the story of Christianity, not only true, but lovely. What happens next makes it not just real, but life-giving, okay? We worship a very holy God, and we are very unholy, but in God's kindness and gentleness, he uses all of his power and all of his greatness not to dismiss us or to crush us, but to heal the unholy and reclaim the rebels. Look at verse six. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the fire, from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is now atoned for. Isaiah confesses the sin of his lips. He says, I live among a people of unclean lips. And then God goes and touches his lips to bring forgiveness and atonement. God goes to the very place of our guilt. Nothing's off limits. He goes to the very source of our guilt, not to mock us or to punish us, but to heal us with his presence. This is reality. This is the true story of the world. God transforms us by his grace. This is also why we take a moment every week in our worship to confess our sins together and then to hear an assurance of the promise of the gracious intervention of God in our lives. This small practice, week in and week out, it reorients us to reality. It brings us back to the true story. It trains our heart to know the rhythm of repentance and faith. The reality is we are small, but God is great. We are unholy. He is perfect and completely holy. But the beauty of the gospel, the gracious way God interacts with small and sinful people like us, is he does not use his greatness to crush us. He does not, uh, but instead he meets us, he knows us, and he loves us. He doesn't use his holiness to exclude us or, or to punish us or to turn us away, but to invite us into his holy family, to include us in his home forever. And the path to this atonement, the way into his family love, is the standing offer of forgiveness and grace 
in Jesus, in his death and resurrection that is on offer for anyone, anytime, all the time. That's reality. That's the good news of worship. We opened um, this sermon with a story of a soldier who is living in an alternate reality. Let's close this sermon with a story of another soldier living in alternate reality. You may not have heard of Hiru Onoda, but I bet you've heard of this second soldier. First name Buzz, last name Lightyear. Anybody familiar? If you remember Toy Story 1, and who doesn't, you remember Buzz believed he was the true Buzz Lightyear, right? Um, who's, he was a superhero whose mission it was to save the galaxy or some other delusional uh, delusion of grandeur close to that. And no matter what they tried, Woody and the other toys could not convince him he was actually just a toy, okay? He insisted on living in this false reality until one day he encountered the truth, right? He met reality. He saw the fact that he was just one of a million toys just like him, one of a million Buzz Lightyears. He wasn't grand and heroic, he was small. His life was not about his own achievements and his own adventures, it was meant to be about somebody else. Whatever child got to take him home and play with him. It turned out the true story of his life was he was a minor character in another person's story. But when Buzz re-enters reality, okay, when he leaves false parallel reality and re-enters actual reality, it's disorienting for him. It's jarring, okay? When he first realizes his life is not his own, it throws him off entirely. It's a shock to the system. He was broken. He thought his life was over. But it turns out that's when his real life was just beginning. Because once Buzz learned to live in reality again, he found his true story was actually far better than the one he'd been living before. So as a toy, it was now his calling to bring great joy to someone else. He now lives in a whole community of other toys whose mission it was to do the exact same thing. Previously, those relationships didn't matter to him. Other toys were either tools to help him in his, in his mission or else totally irrelevant to his life. But now he exists in this whole rich community of relationships who are committed to the same mission as him. He has friends for the very first time. Because he's small, because his life revolves around someone else whose grandeur is so much greater than his own, he can laugh at himself for the very first time. And his mission becomes life-giving again to bring joy to Andy, and he learns to love him very, very much. When we encounter God in worship, it can be a shock to the system, admittedly, okay? I admit that. Uh, It can be disorienting at first. We hear things like, we're more sinful than we even knew, and it's offensive. We learn that we're not the main character in our own story, but a minor character in the story of Jesus in the world. We realize we have a lot more to confess, And we're probably not as significant as we care to admit. But after the shock of worship wears off, it turns out the new story is so much richer and more life-giving than we could have guessed. Yeah, we're small, but we are loved and cared for by the king of all things. The one who owns everything is invested in us. We're sinful, but we're forgiven. We're healed, redeemed made whole. 
We're a minor character, and our delusions of grandeur need to go to bed. But when we wake up again on the other side, we're fa- we find we're surrounded by a whole family of people who've been called to the very same mission, the very same story, and the very same joy. We have a community of friends that won't even end in this lifetime, but will carry on into eternity. And, and, and we revolve around bringing joy and glory and fame to the one who deserves it all. Jesus Christ. That's the point of this passage. That's the point of this sermon. That's the point of why we worship every week. The reality of the true and living God is a reality of healing and a reality of joy that is better than whatever other story we're living in. It's a much better story than we could ever make up on our own. And it also just so happens to be true. So it's got that going for it too. That's why we worship, to encounter the living God and to be changed. Let's pray to him now. Jesus, thank you. Um, Thank you for meeting us in worship. Thank you for entering our lives. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to come down to be a part of of a small and sinful group of people, but you did because you love us and as that verse we read from Zephaniah earlier said, you, you take great delight in us. You, you sing over us with joy. And that is a gift. And I pray that as we worship you, you would grow our hearts to reflect you more and more. You would reorient us to the truth and to the reality of your love and your presence in our lives. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.